is Bloomberg Surveillance. The banks are in much better position now than they were before the crisis. Much more capital. They're much more resilient. One of the more important transmission mechanisms of monetary policy when rates get to very low levels is actually through the exchange rate. Whatever the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, is going to do in terms of its monetary policy will have a big impact on markets. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 1 p.m. in Frankfurt, where in 45 minutes the European Central Bank will announce its latest monetary policy decision. What will Mario do? We will have the decision, and you'll hear from Senor Draghi at 8.30 Wall Street time. And all morning we'll be looking at the possibilities and reaction here on Surveillance. Ahead of the decision, European stocks are mixed. The stock 600 is up a tenth of a percent. That's uh, less than a full point. The DAX is up 23 points, two-tenths of a percent. And the CAC 40, which was negative during much of the day, even though we had a stronger-than-expected French industrial production report, now reflecting that, up a tenth of a percent, five points on the day. The FTSE is off by 16. That's about a three-tenths drop. The euro at the moment is lower, 109.74, but we should point out, of course, it is higher than it was on December 3rd when the bank of uh, when the European Central Bank last met and disappointed the markets. In general, we can say European bond curves are slightly flatter today, the German two-year at negative 55 basis points. Here in the U.S., futures decidedly higher. S&P e-mini futures up by seven points, three-tenths of a percent. Dow futures by 28, two-tenths. The Nasdaq e-mini futures are up 11. That is a three-tenths gain for that index. The dollar is a little bit weaker against the yen. Some haven flows there, uh, 113.62. The pound, 142.09. Uh, bonds in the U.S. are higher, yields lower, 1.86 for the 10-year, 5-year, 1.36, the 2-year at 0.88. And, of course, we should mention oil prices because Mario Draghi has cited those as an important factor in what the ECB does because of their influence on inflation. Brent crude, 40.76, is uh, down three-quarters of a percentage point. West Texas at 38.19, off by three-tenths. Well, the ECB... We'll never say this, but one goal of cutting rates is to weaken the euro. How does that affect the rest of the world? Constantinos Venedis is with Lombard Street Global Macro, uh, Macro Research. You've been looking at a rally in emerging markets because the uh, currencies that we have been following have basically been stable, although the U.S. trade-weighted dollar has fallen 3% since the ECB last met. That's correct, yeah. I think uh, we have some more of this rally. Uh, we have seen U.S. data at the margin improve. Chinese policymakers also want to stimulate at least other margins. So I guess, you know, we have, may have more of this rally. Having said that, calling the bottom is a bit premature at this stage, I think. Well, how would you describe it? Give me a, a, an adjective or a description to, to, to sort of set the stage for where we are in emerging markets as they watch uh, this week, the ECB and Bank of Japan. Next week, uh, the U.S. Fed. 
I think on the margin, things are getting less bad. Uh, that's the key point here. It's, it's kind of a green shoot uh, mentality. People are seeing this and sort of with the U.S. and Chinese data getting better, they're trying to sort of buy into this and cover their shorts somewhat. But I think, you know, if you look at this more structurally, uh, China is still fragile, so PMIs are stable but still pointing to contraction. And money is sort of tightening overall in EMs. And I think you have this prolonged sort of flow weakness, so growth and earnings have been weak for some time. And this, at some point, contaminates balance sheets, so the stock is contaminated. And I think this will sort of begin to show in the next few quarters. So calling the bottom here may be a bit premature for these reasons. Yeah, but still, we're hearing the same tone, folks, from Konstantinos Venetis that we heard from Olivier Blanchard earlier this morning about things are modestly improving. Bloomberg Surveillance this ECB morning. Brought to you by Invesco. Looking for investment views, experienced experts are just a click away. Go to Invesco.com slash U.S. to subscribe to the Invesco blog and follow at Invesco U.S. on uh, Twitter. Konstantinos, when I, when I look at the, the interdependencies of Europe and all, who will Mario Draghi be speaking to today in the press conference? I'm always fascinated by the, the audience. Is the audience other finance ministers and central bankers? Is it a one-way dialogue with the Bundesbank? Is he speaking to Eastern Europe? Who's he talking to? I think all of these together, but I think Mr. Draghi at some point will like to see the fiscal side become a bit more stimulative and a bit more proactive, and that in Europe uh, always takes time, and that's a key problem. At the same time, you know, we've seen the Japanese uh, experience with negative rates hasn't really brought uh, all the things people wanted them to bring in the beginning. So I guess, you know, we are in a strange situation. Uh, he will do whatever it takes, but I think at some point this will have to morph into a fiscal uh, force as well. How does that happen? Mike, I don't see it. I, I don't understand the mechanism. It, it's like inflationistas, except it's austeritystas, almost. Well, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be much enthusiasm, uh, Constantinos, for any kind of fiscal activity in the Arizona or anywhere else in the world right now. That is correct. I think inflation, nevertheless, will at some point start to migrate towards core inflation in Europe, which is about 1%. Uh, and that's the hope at the ECB at the moment. Of course, they need to push for that and sort of be seen as uh, actually adding to, the, to these forces. But I think, you know, base effects as well as some growth uh, in Europe should see a headline CPI tend to the core uh, this year. Your focus is on EM uh, research as well. How is trade doing, and particularly with with Europe, where it's such an important part of their uh, economic mix? Trade has been sluggish. It has been showing signs of life, but nothing game-changing. And I think, uh, you know, unless China, uh, you know, grows more than it does now, or at least uh, people are less uncertain about its trade uh, sort of trade thrust, uh, you will see EM trade uh, remain subdued, and prices as well as volumes are being subdued. So that doesn't help uh, at all. Divergence is the story everybody's talking about right now, with the Fed set to uh, raise rates at least sometime this year, and and, uh, all the focus being on the other central banks lowering rates. How does that affect the rest of the world, or, or have we priced it? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I think in EMs, at least, you have to be uh, looking at different areas and draw different conclusions. So, say, in Latin countries uh, like Brazil, inflation has been high. 
uh, fiscal policy hasn't really been disciplined. So the central banks are essentially uh, prevented from easing policy, even though you have uh, growth in recession. Uh, in most of Asia, on the other hand, uh, inflation is low. Maybe you have even uh, disinflation or deflation in some places. And rates have been coming down. Having said that, in real terms, if you compare this to, say, 2010 levels, these are much higher than they were back then. So uh, the big picture here is that real rates are higher, spreads are higher, and this means tighter money conditions. And unless this turns, uh, this is a, a reason not to be calling the bottom here in EM risk assets. Uh, Dr. Vanitas, thank you so much. Constantinos Vanitas with uh, Charles Dumont, Lombard Street at Research uh, this morning. Um, we have a, a very busy date calendar this morning. Clearly, the um, top moment will be Michael McKee parsing out. Mike, how many minutes into the press conference do the headlines get important? It doesn't start right away. Depends on it? what uh, Senor Draghi wants to do. Uh, he will generally... Uh, he'll start off by describing what they did in terms of rates, and uh, we'll get that data 45 minutes earlier. So if he just repeats that, it won't matter. Yeah. You don't want to miss uh, too much of it because he could immediately say, in addition to rates, we're doing this. Exactly. The In addition to, and I got much more of that from Steve Whiting this morning with Citigroup, the idea of the optionality that uh, Mr. Draghi has as he attends the moment. The Euro 109-79 Futures, as Mike mentioned, up eight. Dow futures up 49, so a nice lift to the market uh, there. Oil, again, churning the entire Bloomberg terminal. I'm going to go back four days, if not six days, has been a churn. Up, down, up, down, and even minute by minute. Yields are in fractionally. Don't want to make too much of it. 186 on the 10-year. We'll watch a German two-year is a headline-to-headline litmus paper. Uh, for the Draghi press conference, negative 0.554 to three digits in 0.014 uh, points, negative 0.554 in the German uh, two-year as well. Uh, Bloomberg surveillance this morning, we're brought to you by National Realty, 30% returns on cash in rented real estate. Find them, find National Realty at nria.net, nria. Net. Mike, what's, the, what's the, the greatest likelihood that we're going to get out of Mr. Draghi? Uh, the forecast consensus is for a 10 basis point cut in the deposit rate to negative 40. Uh, then we'll see if he adds any QE. There's a feeling he may uh, accelerate the purchase of bonds across the eurozone. Accelerate, beautifully explained. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance on Economics, Finance, Investment, and International Relations. Certainly, it is an international moment for Mario uh, Draghi. Um, oil, 38.24, the barrel. Time now to check with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Republican Party Chairman Reince Priebus says he wants today's Republican presidential debate to be more of a G-rated event than recent showdowns. The four remaining candidates will hold their latest debate tonight at the University of Miami. Democratic presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders debated immigration and other issues last night in Florida. Clinton faulted Sanders for repeatedly voting against the 2007 Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. Sanders faulted Clinton for opposing a 2007 effort to let people who were in the country illegally obtain driver's licenses. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will pay a visit to the White House today. 
President Barack Obama will give Trudeau a state dinner, the first for Canada since 1997. Later today, President Obama and Trudeau will talk about the environment. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael, thank you so much. Coming up, the conversation of the day for global banking, Jess Staley of Barclays. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by the Town of Hempstead Industrial Development Agency. Find out how to put the Tower of Town of Hempstead IDA to work for your business. Call 1-800-593-3870 or visit tohida.org. Welcome back to Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keene. A man with enormous challenges ahead of him is James Staley, Jess Staley. He's the new chief executive officer of Barclays, and he is sitting down with our Eric Schatzker for this exclusive interview. Thank you very much. A welcome to Bloomberg television viewers and Bloomberg radio listeners around the world to this conversation with Jess Staley, the CEO of Barclays here at Barclays headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. Jess, good morning to you. Eric, how are you doing? This is your 100-day anniversary. Did you know that? Uh, no, but uh, December no, 1st to today, 100 days. Right. How does it feel? Is the honeymoon over? Uh, it feels terrific. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of challenges, uh, but there's so much strong assets inside of Barclays. The people are great. The client base is, is terrific. The opportunities for this bank are are great. So, it's a run. Uh, there's a lot in front of us and a lot of challenges, but I'm very optimistic about where we're, we're going to end up. Let's speak about some of the immediate challenges. The market conditions out there appear to be pretty tough, right? Volatility, complaints about the liquidity in a fixed income market, for example, the operating environment in general. Is Barclays on the same track as Citigroup and J.P. Morgan this quarter looking at a sales and trading business down 15 to 25 percent? You know, uh, obviously the markets went through a very traumatic experience in 2008 and 9 and created a, a global calamity in terms of the economy that we're still recovering from. And how the banks evolve, uh, how the regulators evolve to end up in a place where we have a safe financial system, where the banks won't get in trouble again, but we have a functioning capital markets that finances economic growth. We're still in the middle of that process, and Barclay is a, is a, is a player there. Um, we like the assets that we have. You know, uh, we've just redefined our, our strategy around being a transatlantic consumer, corporate, and investment bank. Uh, there are some great businesses there. Um, uh, so we like the assets that we have as a bank, but there's still this evolution in the financial markets that we have to live through. How is it going to affect you this quarter? You know, we're not going to talk about this quarter. We did say we had a pretty good January in February. The quarter's not over yet. Um, uh, we like how our business is, is moving forward, so, uh, but we won't comment on the quarter specifically. These imbalances that you speak of, though, this tricky act, right, between pre preventing the financial system from cratering again and creating an environment in which, uh, you know, the handmaidens of capitalism can actually uh, earn a return, um, is there any reason those balances are going to be better struck between now and the end of the year, or is this where we are for now and for a while yet? You know, uh, um, uh, the markets, I think, are having some difficult times adjusting to what's happened with commodity prices, oil in particular. What's going on in China clearly has had a, a very big impact. 
Um, this whole slow growth uh, is a challenge for the markets. The inflation expectations are incredibly low. That's leading to some central banks talking about negative interest rates. Mm -hmm. This is completely uncharted territory. You know, how the financial markets would respond to negative interest rates on the scale that are being discussed is we just don't know. Um, so uh, the markets will be challenging uh, this year, but the banking industry is so much stronger now than it was uh, in 2008. The capital levels are completely different. The liquidity levels are completely different. We have such a more robust banking industry than we did back then. So it is a safer group of banks dealing with the challenging market. The ECB is going to make its latest policy announcement just a few minutes from now at 7.45 Eastern time this morning. There's a widespread expectation that they're going to be even more accommodative than they have been. Negative interest rates aren't an issue for your U.K. consumer business, but you're operating in a European banking environment. How challenging are negative interest rates for a bank like Barclays? You know, negative interest rates are, are, a, are a reality today, but on a very limited scale. I mean, the negative interest rates right now are, are essentially only on excess reserves. Mm -hmm. The interest rates for the consumer, the interest rates across the banking industry itself are still positive. So we're a long way ago, I think, from being a very disruptive influence in the banking industry. But we've got to keep an eye on it. And with inflation expectations so low, uh, it's a challenge for the investment banks, or excuse me, for the central banks, to continue to be every day more accommodative and to try to push the economy forward through that accommodation. The, the, the aggressive monetary policy, I think, is having every day less and less ability to get the economies moving forward. And that's a challenge for all of us. So, but more specifically, is, as it concerns the banking industry, I mean, don't negative interest rates cause bank profits to shrink? Don't they disincentivize cross-border lending? Don't they create nonlinear effects in bank funding? The big, uh, the, uh, the big factor which is impacting bank profitability in terms of the retail banking practice and, and whatnot are low interest rates. Um, uh, you know, the net interest margin of banks has been shrinking because mm -hmm. we have low interest rates across the board. So sure, that is a weight. But, you know, most of the retail banking industry is doing quite well. Barclays, you know, our return on equity in our, in our retail bank and our credit card business are in the mid-teens. It's a great business for us, you know, as we were talking. You know, we are a hugely important part of the U.K. economy. About 30 percent of the uh, United Kingdom GDP every day goes through the payment pipes of Barclays, whether it's our Barclay card or whether it's our retail branches. We are inextricably linked with the economic success of the UK. And uh, so these are difficult times, but we're doing well, and, uh, and, our, and our position in the UK retail market is, is great. Jess, you've had a chance now to talk about the bank's new strategy with some of your largest investors, and it's fair to say some of them are deeply skeptical. What's the hardest question you've had to answer? Um, you know, we've made two strategic uh, decisions uh, in the first 100 days. Uh, one was to sell to a deconsolidating, non-controlling position in Africa. Mm -hmm. Barclays has been in Africa for over 100 years, in places like Kenya and Uganda. To make that decision to pull back from the continent has been very, very hard, so that's a tough question. And then the second one is uh, the investment banking industry. You know, our strategy is to be a transatlantic consumer, corporate, and investment bank, with, uh, with our anchors being New York and London, the two financial capitals of, of the world. 
investment banking as an industry right now does not cover its cost of capital. So if you look across all the investment banks, on average, they do not generate a sufficient return to earn the capital that they have. That's a fundamental flaw in the financial system, and it's a tough answer. And it's a tough question to answer. When is that going to change? It is indeed. As we welcome Bloomberg Television viewers and radio listeners around the world to this conversation with Jess Daly, Jess, I'm going to say that I'm surprised that you didn't add a third difficult question there, which was the dividend cut. Um, it came as a shock. That's fair to say to many shareholders. Why cut the dividend when it saves you roughly just about a half billion dollars a year and there's such a strong shareholder preference for income in the U.K., more so than in the U.S.? Uh, one, we will continue to pay a dividend, but yes. we did reduce the dividend uh, by roughly uh, uh, 50% for two years, 16 and, and 17. We have a core franchise of our consumer credit card business, uh, corporate bank and investment bank. That is a great investment bank franchise here in New York and in London. And, you know, being one of the few European investment banks out there today, I think it's a competitive advantage for Barclays. How, though, does ring fencing, right, the funding cost that that imposes on your bank, the U.K. balance sheet tax, bonus caps, and the senior manager regime not put you at a disadvantage relative to, say, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the list goes on. You know, having worked at J.P. Morgan, I assure you there's no one there saying, boy, we have a huge competitive advantage because our regulators are so nice to us. I mean, everyone is facing the regulatory challenge of, adjust, of adjusting to the new realities of, of the financial markets. I, I fundamentally believe that the U.K. regulators want to see a British bank uh, within the leading investment banking group. Um, remember, it is, however, only 25% of our risk capital. You know, we are predominantly a retail consumer corporate bank. Um, uh, but I think the U.K. would love to see a British bank uh, as a major player in the world's capital markets, and that's what Barclay is today. Okay, since you've created an opportunity for me, I want to play a scenario game. Pretend I'm a multinational CEO. Remember, this is the world of make-believe. My company is active in capital markets. I do a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Tens of millions in fees are at stake. I've decided to hold my own little bake-off, right? J.P. Morgan or Barclays. Jess Daly is called in to close the deal. What's your pitch to me? You know, there's so much uh, intellectual talent uh, in Barclays, and, and I think we manage this bank with a set of values that I'm very proud of and hopefully all the people at Barclays are very proud of. It's just the quality of our advice. Uh, you know, we're going to give our best foot forward. Uh, we'll give the client our best ideas. We will, our, our thoughts will be what is in their best interest, not what gets a transaction done. J.P. Morgan is an outstanding bank, uh, but so is Barclays, and so we'll let the CEO uh, decide between the two. <laughs> All right, now the argument number two against keeping the investment bank, it's simply not profitable enough, right? Look at the return on equity or tangible equity, if you prefer. Look at the cost-to-income ratio, what they call the efficiency ratio here. Look at your standing in some of the most profitable, high-margin businesses in investment banking, and you're not where you used to be. You know, uh, like a lot of investment banks, not all, we have dramatically had to reduce our risk-weighted assets. So we've taken the risk on our investment bank's balance sheet down in half. Uh, faced with that headwind, actually from 2014 to 15, we doubled the return on equity. We doubled uh, the profitability. We have a long way to go. 
We've got to do a lot on managing the costs uh, in our investment bank. Uh, so we won't rest until we deliver in the investment bank a return on equity that covers the cost of capital. But that's what we're going to accomplish. Okay, but that's an industry-wide problem, right? And wishing isn't going to fix it. We're not going to wish. We're going to execute here at Barclays to get there. But I do fundamentally believe that if we're going to rely on the global capital markets, which is you know mutual funds and pension funds buying debt and equity issued by companies, I don't believe the world will feel safe if we're relying on a global capital markets where the intermediaries, the investment banks, can't raise capital, can't earn a fair return to their shareholders. It's just not a stable platform to fund the world's economy. So how long till it course corrects? And what's know. the catalyst? I think it's happening now. Um, so Do you? Oh, for sure. I think uh, all of the banks, I think, are looking at how to manage these balance sheets with far less risk on them in a way to deliver the capital markets to clients, but in a way that delivers profitability to our, to our, our, our shareholders. Okay, and here's the third argument. The culture simply can't be fixed, right? Your bank has paid 20 billion pounds in misconduct, fines, penalties, and other costs, wiped out your profit for, what, five years? Most of that started here at the investment bank. You know, I do, I've said this before, Eric, I do believe that Wall Street lost its way uh, um, you know, in, the, in the late 90s. Uh, I do believe that money became too much of a motivational factor. Uh, I think banking's got to reverse back to the time when it was a profession, when uh, uh, being a practitioner in the profession of finance was like being a lawyer or being a doctor. Um, we've got a lot to atone for. Uh, we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but have no doubt the only existential risk to Barclays is if we get it wrong in the future in, on, on conduct. And everyone in this room knows Why that. Why are you certain that you can change that conduct and change that culture? Because I started in the banking industry that had the right conduct, that had the right culture. So it's, it's just going back to something that I've seen before. And I think everybody in this room wants to get there. But there are still, in this room, I'm sure, unreasonable expectations when it comes to compensation. You've talked about the gulf, right, between expectations and, you know, what's reasonable, what's you know, rational. How do you close that gap? We've reduced the bonus pool at Barclays, for instance, by over half in the last four years. And they're all still here. And they're all working hard. And, and you know, we will get the culture in the right place. We need to pay uh, uh, competitively, but people aren't here uh, just because of a check. They want to be here to do the right things for our clients. But don't you have that. to be able to draw the line on pay, even if it costs you some talent? Sure. You know, we won't, uh, I'm not going to buy someone to come from Barclays, never. So uh, people have to come here and stay here for reasons other than monetary gain. But are you buying people, for example, when we talk about your senior management team, are you buying no. people from other places? No. For example, you know, Mr. Compton, Mr. Ventakrishnan, they left J.P. Morgan. I, did they leave J.P. Morgan for a pay cut? I can't imagine they did. No, but there's no guaranteed compensation for either of them. They came here because they want to help Barclays become a great institution. You believe that? Yes, I do. What is the one thing you need to do if you're going to transform this room Right into a Roman galleon where everybody's roaring in your direction. You know, uh, uh, to reinsert the values of, of of being a banker as a profession. You know, uh, realizing that the real asset of a, of a banker is the trust that our consumers and clients place in us, and you and you earn that trust by always acting with the level of in, integrity that stands you out amongst the industry. And I want people at Barclays to feel that and act that way, and I believe that we can do that as a bank. What's the single biggest risk to this company? 
single biggest risk to this company is um, uh, someone violating the values of this firm. One last question here. Brexit, right? ECB decision coming any moment, but another big topic for Europe is, is the potential for a Brexit. Stuart Gulliver says that HSBC would have to move a thousand people from the UK to Paris in the event of a Brexit, which is not out of the question. I have to imagine you've run the numbers. What would Barclays do? You know, we've come out publicly. Our chairman uh, uh, in his chairman letter said we believe uh, the best thing for our customers and our clients in the United Kingdom is for the UK to stay sure. part of the European but uh, Union. But if it doesn't? You know, uh, we will suffer because our customers and our clients will suffer in the UK. But we're a UK bank, so uh, inside of the United Kingdom we'll be fine. But if our clients suffer, we suffer, and therefore we've made the recommendation that uh, that the UK vote to stay inside the European Union. Jess, on behalf of Bloomberg Television viewers worldwide, Bloomberg Radio listeners worldwide, I want to thank you for this opportunity. David, that is Jess Staley. He is the Chief Executive Officer at Barclays. We're here in Midtown Manhattan. That is Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker with Barclays' new CEO, Jess Staley, suggesting that banks are challenged these days, particularly with central banks still struggling to find ways to stimulate global economic growth, but that Barclays has a good future in front of them. The stock is up by about a tenth of a percent since the interview began. I thought what was great about it, Mike, was his quiet statement. It used to be like being a doctor or a lawyer. That is true. I yep. know those younger don't believe it, but <laughs> before the madness of the media affecting financial things, it was actually like that. The world has changed. It has changed. Now it's time for the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Edu. Here's Bob Moon. Michael, here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. All U.S. drone operators would, for the first time, have to prove they understand aviation regulations under broad legislation introduced in the Senate. The bill-setting policy for the Federal Aviation Administration includes several new drone provisions, including a requirement for unmanned flyers to pass an online test. There are signs the European Union is gearing up to send Google an antitrust complaint over its Android mobile phone system, according to people familiar with the probe, adding to the growing list of regulatory woes for the company on the continent. The EU has voiced concerns over Google's bundling of apps, such as Maps, YouTube, and Chrome software with Android, questioning whether the practice harms independent developers of competing apps. And Bloomberg Intelligence reports a ruling in the net neutrality legal challenge to rules barring ISPs from blocking, degrading, or favoring Internet traffic. It's likely before the third quarter. AT&T, CenturyLink, and associations for wired and wireless Internet service providers have attacked the FCC's net neutrality rules in court. And that's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Bob Moon, thank you very much. Well, we are now about uh, six minutes away, Tom, from the ECB decision that everybody is waiting on, at least part of it, the rates decision. What is the history of headlines uh, coming out at 745 
followed up by press conference. How does he do that? He, he does the headlines, obviously. The headlines come out and give us what the rates are going to be. They just tell you what the rate the, is going the grand, to be. The, the actual mechanism. The actual mechanism, and in this case, mm-hmm. they are certainly the main refinancing rate. Their benchmark rate is at five basis points. That hasn't been changed in quite a while. It's the deposit rate, the uh, rate that banks get charged for keeping money at the ECB, they have been uh, maneuvering, and that is negative 30 basis points now. The forecast is they may add another 10. Look across all of uh, Bloomberg Digital Media for our coverage today of the economics and the challenges Mr. Draghi faces. Coming up next, the ECB announcement. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. We're counting you down to the opening bell, brought to you by the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by Eisner Amper. When entrepreneurs face challenges like choosing a business structure or access to capital, they call the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amper. Connect with them, EisnerAmper.com slash tech. And the European Central Bank lowering its benchmark interest rate to zero and cutting its deposit facility rate to minus 0.4%. Of course, we have much more on this coming up as Bloomberg surveillance continues. Just looking at market reaction, those stocks are jumping in Europe. The DAX in Germany now a 2.2 percent. The CAC in Paris up 2.1 percent. FT100 up six tenths percent. S&P E-mini futures now up 18 points. Dow E-mini futures up 119. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 41. Ten-year Treasury up 4.30 seconds. The yield 1.86 percent. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Thank you, Karen Moscow. Well, it looks like Mario Draghi is throwing the book at the, the markets, yes. making many changes to monetary policy for the European Central Bank. They cut the main financing rate, uh, their main benchmark rate, to zero. That's a five basis point cut. They uh, lowered the marginal uh, lending facility to 25 basis points, and they cut the deposit rate to negative 40 basis points, a 10 basis point cut, which had been expected. They are also increasing QE, 80 billion euros a month, another 20 billion a month. They are also announcing a new series of long-term repo operations with banks, loans to banks. They're expanding QE to include non-bank Corporate bonds, that is a very interesting change by the ECB. A lot of people did not think they would get to there to that yet. Yeah. Uh, Mario Draghi says that, uh, or at least the ECB says, that the measures will take effect on March 16th. So an enormous amount of changes in European monetary policy, Tom. And you see it with the movement in yields. Yields went lower, more negative for the German two-year. They reversed sharply. I would suggest off the corporate paper announcement, uh, the German two-year negative 0.532 is fractionally less negative a more positive movement on the German uh, two-year. The euro craters not back to any kind of support or to a two-standard deviation move, but a 108.75 is in a full 126 pips 
for the euro. This is a weaker euro. Mike, I would put the uh, mark on um, support in the vicinity of 108.27, 50 or 60 pips away, and two standard deviations is 108.13. So we're a bit away from any kind of breakdown in the euro, even though the, the euro is weaker off the announcement. All right, let's get some expert analysis of this from Brunello Rosov with uh, Rubini Economics. Uh, Brunello, Mario Draghi uh, today had a number of alternatives he could have chosen to stimulate growth in the Eurozone. He chose all of them, basically. Yes, effectively, he went the full Monty almost uh, in the sense that uh, uh, he has lowered all the three um, uh, policy rates that he had at uh, his disposal. Uh, of course, most notably the um, uh, deeper rate by 10 basis points, but also the MRO by 5 basis points. That could be important for the pricing of the uh, new TLTROs. Now, we need to see uh, what these uh, new TLTROs are uh, uh, about, if there's any um, a difference uh, with the previous one uh, that were launched in uh, June 2014. Probably the pricing, as I was saying, is going to be lower due to the low, uh, the <clears throat> lower MRO rate. The big surprise, if you want, is the increase in the size of uh, QE from 60 up to immediately 80 billion a month. Uh, a 70 billion uh, expansion would have been more likely, but uh, clearly. ACB didn't want to disappoint the market uh, right. at this stage. Uh, Mike, uh, jump in here with Bruno as well. I want to say markets on the move. Futures explode. Call it asset-friendly, up 15. Dow futures up 106 to 17,020. Uh, the German two-year, I just put that out on Bloomberg Radio Plus. It's a five-point, make it a 6% move. I see no end yet to the surge in German two-year yields from negative 056 all the way up through negative 0.51. Mike, that bears close watching. Why do you suppose that is, Brunello? We would have thought it would go the other way. Well, uh, we need to see what the positioning was. Uh, but if you want to find perhaps a more fundamental uh, uh, explanation, if people think that this is a fully reflationary move, in reality you should see uh, 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 rates to go eventually up. Perhaps the two year is a bit uh, um, uh, short maturity to see those kind of movements, but uh, there's the chance that people see this uh, as eventually something that the market could work with in terms of uh, uh, eventually get a reflation. Mike, Jamie McGeever over at Reuters just puts out on Twitter a photograph of a kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that about sums it up. Well, the one thing I, I, uh, I may have missed it because there is so much out of the ECB this morning, Brunello, but they didn't seem to change the basis on which they make their buying decisions, the capital key. So uh, they seem to have addressed that by allowing the central banks to buy uh, the, the corporate bonds. Yes, I mean, um, the expansion of eligible assets already happened in uh, December last year when they expanded to um, local, uh, uh, regional, uh, and municipal bonds. Clearly, if they want to expand further, the pace of asset purchases, and, and from 60 to 80 is a big expansion. They needed to find new assets to buy in order to reduce the scarcity effect that was already affecting um, boom deals. And by the way, this reduction of the scarcity effect might be also behind the rise in uh, uh, some of the boom deals that we were discussing uh, before the shots in that case. 
so I think that that's also uh, an explanation for what's going on in the market now. Bruno, if this is QE, the trois, whatever it is, is there any more ammunition other than the simplicity of just lower rates? How is the toolbox set for Mr. Draghi going forward? So uh, they are probably already reaching the limits of what they can do, um, uh, given the current uh, toolkit, um, because, uh, you know, in terms of deeper rate, they, can, they might go perhaps a minus 50 basis point, perhaps slightly lower by introducing a two-tier reserve system. Um, on, the, on the QE side, uh, they cannot expand indefinitely, so we'll, they will need something new to buy. And this new thing... Uh, is probably something that is not available yet and is what you might call Eurobonds, right? Something that is created by some form of fiscal union that needs to happen in the Eurozone. But as we all know, in order for that to happen, you probably need another crisis first and then there will be another quantum leap into the Eurobonds and then the ECB will have plenty of stuff to buy. But we are not there yet. It, uh, one of the problems the ECB has faced is that we don't get the reaction to monetary policy in the periphery countries that we get in the core. They seem to be wanting to address that with the um, LTROs. Uh, four years is the term for this, and they can borrow at a rate equal to the deposit rate. So they can, you can borrow money, and the ECB essentially is going to be paying you to do it. Yes, um, and, and, but this is something I'm a bit concerned about because we saw what happened when the Altiero and even the TLTRO was um, uh, introduced. Banks did use those, uh, those, uh, this liquidity to go into uh, and buy the high-yielding uh, sovereign credit, being the Italian BTPs, uh, Spanish bonus and obligaciones and all the rest. Um, and uh, and uh, instead... What we really would like to see is this nexus between banks and sovereigns to be broken eventually. If that happens again, I, I fear that we are actually making this nexus even right. stronger. And so financial stability concern may actually increase as opposed to decrease. Am I correct that the ECB will take in Siemens corporate debt? When we say corporate bonds, mm-hmm. are they going to bring in Total of France and Siemens of Germany? So one of the reasons why we didn't expect this to happen or be announced formally, so to speak, is because um, they were already buying some of the corporate bonds of quasi-sovereigns, so to speak, via the agency uh, program where right, you right, had, right. you know, that right? So uh, I, I really want to see how they want to address this because, as you can understand, um, they don't want to take as much uh, credit risk, okay. so they Did, cannot be in the high yield space. They need the, in the I, I like that. You need to see more information on March 16th or whatever the date is. But critically here, did Mario Draghi just make Europe more like Japan? Uh, yeah, we probably made another step in that direction. I'm not sure it's a good thing because, as we saw, if you keep on addressing this long-term issue with, only with monetary mm-hmm. instruments and nothing changes no. on, on the fiscal, uh, you're not going to solve the problem. You'll make it worse. 30, 30 seconds left. Uh, we're seeing a big market reaction. Draghi threw the kitchen sink at it. Does the market reaction last, or is this just uh, covering positions? 
Uh, there's a bit of both, uh, but you know the package is quite significant. So the market is probably going to appreciate the fact that the the bank has decided yeah. to surprise on the upside this time around, and so this reaction is probably uh, going okay. to last, especially on the euro dollar, which is probably start at this time towards parity. But we don't think it's going to go to parity anytime soon. Brunella, anyway. fabulous, Brunella Rosa, just absolutely fabulous with Rubini uh, economics. The euro, uh, well, it moves towards parity, 109. Call it 110 down to 108.50. U.S. futures surge up 19. Dow futures up 143. Mario Draghi with every tool available. We'll have the press conference at 8.30. Stay with us.